0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast by Deloitte Southeast Asia. In this series of talks, we cover topics ranging from new ways of working to latest trends in work, workforce, and workplace, and the impact of technology on all of them. We also discuss how organizations across Southeast Asia are developing leaders, managing remote teams, as well as the demands on the workforce of the future. I'm Indranil Roy, your host, and I lead the Future of Work program for Deloitte, Southeast Asia. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast. For the past 18 months, there has been a massive shift to remote hybrid work necessitated by the global pandemic. Many leaders have attempted to cross the first hurdles of moving their teams remote, such as ensuring team members set up their technology tools and by defining their virtual work processes. But these actions are just scratching the surface of creating an effective work environment for employees working remotely. A critical question that all leaders should answer is how do you motivate people when they work remotely? And I'm delighted to say that uh, in today's episode, we are excited to have Neil Doshi, author of Prime to Perform, and co-founder of Vega Factor, and an expert on workplace engagement and productivity to discuss how to build high-performing cultures in a world where remote hybrid work is the norm. Neil is the co-founder of Vega Factor, a startup building technology to help organizations transform their cultures, and co-author of a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Prime to Perform. How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. Furthermore, Neil is also the thought leader in topics such as solving for work-life balance is attacking a symptom, not the disease, and money can enable or destroy performance. I've always wanted to talk to Neil about this topic, and I'm delighted to say that he is with us today. He studied engineering at MIT and received an MBA from Wharton. He's previously been a partner at McKinsey & Company. I won't hold that against you, Neil. Uh, CTO and founding member of an award-winning tech startup, an employee of several mega institutions. So, Neil, welcome. Welcome to the
1: Future of Work podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: So, Neil, um, I was reading a recent article that you co-wrote in the Harvard Business Review that talked about um, specifically motivating remote employees as they work remotely, And I was intrigued to find that more than anything else, the number one uh, insight that you talked about was that people feel differently motivated when they have choice of where to work versus when they do not have choice of where to work. Tell us more about that.
1: I think that's such a good question because choice is so deeply at the foundation of how motivation works. So to understand motivation, you have to understand that motivation starts with motive. A person's motive is their reason for doing something. And when you unpack people's motives, there are actually fundamentally six human motives. The first is play, why you run this podcast. You do it because it's fun. The activity itself is fun to do. So for example, you see play a lot in people's hobbies. Like, why do I enjoy woodworking? It's fun. I'm not good at it. I'd never produce anything of quality or value. No one was ever going to buy anything I made. But I still do it because it's fun. Now, play motive usually is about novelty, curiosity, problem solving. There's newness implicit in play. Like Think about in your own life. It gets boring when you stop having newness. Same thing is true at work. The second motive is purpose. Purpose is when you do something because you value its immediate outcome. So play doesn't matter what the outcome is. It's actually about the activity itself. Purpose is you value its immediate outcome. Put differently, you believe you matter. Like no one else is going to create the value that you're creating. The third motive is potential. If purpose is you believe the work immediately matters, potential is you believe it eventually matters. So for example, let's say one of your reasons for doing this podcast is you believe that it'll help you influence positive change in Southeast Asia. Well, that's potential motive. It's not the immediate outcome of this podcast, but it's an eventual one. These three motives, though, are anchored off the work in some way directly. They're called the direct motives. Play is the work, purpose, immediate outcome, potential, eventual outcome. But there are motives that are not. And this is where choice starts to play an important role. So, for example, internal. a question for you. Have you ever tried to get a loved one to do something using guilt?
0: Oh, yes. All the time.
1: All, all the time. Oh, yes. So it doesn't work take... very well. <laughs> it doesn't work very well. So guilt... Is an example of the first of the indirect motives called emotional pressure. With emotional pressure, it's usually some external force is acting in your identity to get you to do something. So if I guilt my wife into doing something, I'm the external force, my wife's identity, she cares about me, and I'm trying to get her to do something. Um, guilt is not the only example of emotional pressure. Peer pressure, trying to show up well at, com- at work, trying to impress your boss, all these are examples of emotional pressure. The next is economic pressure, where I'm trying to, I'm doing something. To gain a reward or avoid a punishment. So, the motive is actually not the activity anymore. It's something completely separate. So, for example, in our workplaces, we have these three layers there's the work we have someone do, there's the person, and then we add a third layer, which is the reward and punishment layer. But if you are doing the work because of that reward and punishment layer, it is now economic pressure by definition. And the last motive is inertia. It's when you ask someone, why are you doing what you're doing? And they say, I have no idea. Like, I have no, I can't tell you why I'm even doing this. The, to, to really understand these motives and what, what's the dividing line between the three direct motives and the three indirect motives, the three direct motives is you feel like you have, been, you have chosen to do them. The three indirect motives feel like you've been coerced into doing it in some way, shape, or form. Like you can think about the tension between choice and coercion as the separating line between these motives. Now, of course, when you look at performance, people perform better when they felt like they chose versus when they felt coerced. This is a basic truism. This happens all the time. Like in just about any any aspect of work that requires any form of intellect. If you feel choice versus coercion, you will outperform. By a lot, usually. And so the same thing is true with with regard to remote workers, that one of the biggest challenges is companies didn't realize this, but a lot of the drivers of motivation were kind of accidentally happening in the office. Like play, well, you know, I stumbled upon a new idea. There was the water cooler, kind of um, serendipitous interaction that got me an interesting idea that created some sense of novelty and curiosity in play, or purpose. Um, it's easier to see my work is having impact when I'm surrounded by colleagues, or potential. It's it's easier to see that my work is eventually leading to something bigger when there's a buzz around me doing that. But all that was accidental. It's not like companies built that intentionally into their offices. The problem is all that accidental motivation is gone if you don't now intentionally create it when someone's not in the office. I'm not saying that you can't get to the same place. You absolutely can. Like You can get remote workers to the same or or higher levels of motivation than when they're in the office. The difference is you have to be much more intentional as a company to do it. Uh, An example of that is apprenticeship, where so many companies don't really think strategically about apprenticeship. They don't have a process for it. They don't manage it. They don't measure it. It's accidental. And The way the accidental apprenticeship looks is, well, I happen to be sitting next to Indrenil. He's super sharp. He really knows the space. I eavesdrop every now and then, I pick up something. That's accidental apprenticeship, but that doesn't work effectively in any form of hybrid work environment. There's no accidental eavesdropping.
0: So that's an interesting one because uh, one of the, one of the um, newsworthy, I guess, um, items that came out on remote working was the Goldman CEO talking about the fact that he wanted everybody back in the office because it's an apprenticeship model and we learn um, in that industry or in that organization by um, looking at each other and understanding what others are doing. And I suspect that that apprenticeship model has been talked about a lot, definitely in the consulting industry, definitely in investment banking, definitely in uh, creative arts, et cetera. So are you saying that um, the apprenticeship model can be repurposed or rebuilt intentionally, even in a remote environment, or are you saying that working together face-to-face is a prerequisite of the apprenticeship culture?
1: I'm saying more the former, that it can be intentionally rebuilt in these remote or hybrid environments, and actually intentionally rebuilt in ways that are in some ways superior. So I'll give you an example. Like think about, um, go back to my, my horrible hobby, woodworking. If I was actually an apprentice in woodworking, what I'd probably be doing is I'd be working alongside a master. And I'm, I'm working on my projects while the master is working on, on their projects. The, all the while, I'm observing this master. Like I can see every bit of work that this person is doing. I can see them working the wood plane. I could see them chiseling away at a hole. I could see them do the work. And by the way, they can see me do the work. Now, something got lost in knowledge work where we stopped being able to see people doing the work. You, can't, you don't really often see people in the throes of knowledge work. Um, you see maybe you get an intersection of it every now and then, even in the office, by the way. You get an intersection of it. You see a little slice of it. Like um, maybe one slice of it is you and I collaborate together on some problem. We go to the marker board. And so we're kind of seeing that slice together. But most of knowledge work, that doesn't really happen that way. You usually see outcomes, like deliverables. And then you try to coach somebody on deliverables. That's not apprenticeship. Like in the woodworking analogy, that would be the equivalent of me making that, making a box, showing it to this master and getting feedback on the box. That's totally different because when the master can see me doing the work, I'm getting feedback on my skill, not on the work product. And vice versa, when I can see that master doing their skill, I can see what good actually looks like on the skill, not the outcome. And so we lost something when it comes to apprenticeship and knowledge work, regardless of whether it was at the office or remote. Now, one of the advantages of remote is it's actually kind of easy now to see people do knowledge work. So I'll give you an example. One of the practices that we put into place in organizations and we do in our own organization is akin to, it's akin to essentially watching people do their work. So for example, Let's say you're a financial analyst on my team. What I would say is, okay, as you're doing this deliverable, put it on your screen, get on, a, get on a video conference, share your screen with me so I can actually watch you do the work. All of a sudden, we're actually back in the world of apprenticeship, like real apprenticeship. And in many ways, that was actually easier to do when we're all in front of a computer and we could all get on a video chat. You know, another example is engineers. The, the construct of pair programming, which is popular among some engineers, which we which we very much like, is one where, well, now I can actually see you do the work. I'm actually watching you write code. And I can see how you're thinking. I can see what you're writing. And I, we can talk about it as it goes. All of a sudden, I can develop you on skill, not just outcomes. And so you know, those are just two little examples of how, if we're intentional about apprenticeship and rebuilding it, we can actually do better in this hybrid remote environment than we could before.
0: That's fascinating because, uh, as you pointed out, um, given the fact that we are all working staring at computer screens, uh, we can get access to masters uh, from around the world um, and and do that in a way that um, brings some of that apprenticeship to life, not just in the local office, but by accessing skills and capabilities of mastery from around the world isn't that right
1: 100% like what you're describing is so true like we have an access to a talent market that isn't that we've never had access to before on even very niche stuff like if there's the world's leading expert on this very specific problem we actually have access in a way that we never used to before and we have technology that allows us to see people doing the work from a distance which is absolutely amazing but there's an, important, there's an important thing that I find that organizations have to come to understand to really start to embrace this. They have to understand that skill has capital value, that it's an intangible value of an organization. The, the simplest example of how this has to be true is you hear lately of companies doing acquihires or um, essentially acquiring a company because of its talent and only its talent. What that tells you is the entirety of the value of that company was the skill of its people. And that what that de- demonstrates is there clearly is economic value to skill capital. Now, when you think about a marketing team, they own brand capital. Their goal is to increase the value of that capital. Finance, they'll own financial capital. Their goal is to increase the value of that capital. Who owns skill capital? Now, one might say it's the people operations or HR teams, but not many think that way. Or have after I said those words to themselves, our job is to own skill capital and increase the value of that capital over time. And as a result, what we have to do is well, one, measure that, two, make sure that we have the processes in place, make sure people know how to actually apprentice, not just feedback on outcomes, but apprentice skill. If companies can embrace that, well, one, motivation will go up quite a lot, performance will go up quite a lot, value will go up quite a lot, but that's a real, that's a real seed change for a lot of organizations. So there, there seems to be a gap
0: between what is possible And I agree with you that the possibilities that I'm seeing with some of my clients are immense. And the reality of leaders today, so one of the questions, one of my favorite questions that I ask um, senior executives when we do sessions, and I've been doing this for the last two and a half years, so I must have covered about 2,000 executives on this. And that question is, um, use one word to describe how you felt at work over the last two months. And the number one word that comes up by Quite a margin is overwhelmed, and the number two word that comes up is tired.
1: Not um, super motivating. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> I know. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was that, um, if, as far as I can tell, if you have leaders, and these are senior executives earning you know six, seven-figure salaries, um, if those individuals are feeling overwhelmed and tired, not particularly motivated. Um, I think there is very little chance that they will be able to motivate the teams under them. Um, So as you think about how leaders have had to adapt to new ways of working, the new science around motivation, what are some of the thoughts that you have in terms of helping leaders embrace the new science and the new possibilities faster?
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm so, so spot on your observation too. I really like it. I like the question that you ask. And I like your observation. Like, I think that think about motivation, for example. Your point around these folks often make like high six, seven figure salaries and are themselves demotivated, which tells you that there is a complexity to motivation that we, most companies haven't really internalized yet. Um, So that's kind of thing number one. Like, if you really were to unpack those senior leaders that are saying that to you, almost certainly they're not feeling enough play, purpose, potential in their work. They're feeling way too much emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia which is what's leading to this feeling of overwhelmness and burnout. That's so epidemic right now. I mean, burnout is essentially a consequence of motivation going the wrong way. But going to your point around what do they have to learn? There's a few things that there's a number of things that are critical, but there's a few that that we find to be at the top of the list. So one is everyone has to know how motivation works. I mean, if I could teach this in grade school, I would. Because think about kids in high school who are burning out because of the emotional pressure, the economic pressure of getting to college, and the loss of play of learning, the love of learning that is so important. Uh, as an example, think about parents that are putting that kind of pressure on their kids only to find that the children are burning out. We've essentially, as a society, adopted way too much pressure and is causing epic levels of emotional and, health and mental well-being issues and burnout, like across the board, everywhere. So that's thing number one. As a leader, you have to start to understand how motivation works, including your own. You have to get it to the root of what's causing that exhaustion and that overwhelmness that you're describing. The second thing I would share is the next question most leaders ask me is, okay, Neil, I get it. How do I create that kind of motivation? You know, oftentimes when we describe this to leaders, what we help them try to realize is there's a difference between intensity and pressure. Intensity uses play, purpose, potential. Pressure uses emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. And the question that you'll often ask is, okay, Neil, I get it. How do I create intensity? If I can't use pressure to create intensity, obviously, that doesn't make sense. How do I do it? The second one has to do with you have to have good habits, habits and rhythms. Rhythm energy is probably the most important way to build intensity, not pressure. And if you look at most executives, their rhythms don't really work very well. Like the weekly routines they have with their teams, the weekly routines they have with their organizations, they, are, they feel like performance art, not performance. And so that's the second thing. You have to focus on rhythms that are themselves intense but not pressuring. The third thing that we often share is organizations often mistake planning for prioritizing. Those are different things. They put a lot of energy into planning, like loads and loads of energy into planning, and then almost nothing on prioritizing. They're gearers, they're machinery. The whole thing is about planning with very little on prioritizing. the The equation needs to be flipped entirely, because planning, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I'm sure all your colleagues would know, no plan survives contact with reality. We spend like months and months planning. Three weeks in, the plan doesn't even make sense. Constant prioritization, constant reprioritization is far more important, but rarely done as part of the rhythms of an organization. That's what; Those are the three things we'd usually start with with an organization. One, everyone has to understand what motivation is two, you got to know that your rhythms are the key. And three, those rhythms have to create a rhythm of prioritization. All right. I
0: love that comment that you made that intensity and pressure are two different things. Because one of the f- more uh, fascinating things about the research that is coming through on motivation that rounds, runs counter to how most leaders think about motivation uh, is that even when you are in a high-intensity situation, maybe you're doing you know 16-hour days trying to respond to the COVID uh, pandemic and trying to help uh, people and volunteer in high-pressure situations, The intensity doesn't kill the motivation. In fact, the intensity increases the motivation of the people doing that work. And um, what I'm hearing you say is that we need to figure out a way where we build good intensity into work um, and take out the bad pressure, which is the uncertainty and the economic distress and and all of that. Is that right?
1: 100%. So think about this way. Oftentimes, when I'm doing master classes with executives on motivation, one question they'll say to me is Neil, I understand, you know, help me understand something. Is a deadline higher more motivating or less motivating? Is it is a deadline economic pressure? Because I find often motivated by a deadline. Well, a deadline isn't a motive. A deadline can create motives. A deadline can create play, by the way. Like if you feel like, I mean, think about it this way: the shot clock of a game makes the game more fun. Does it make it less fun? And so the what you have to think about when you're really trying to parse are you being intense or are you being pressuring? Is let's just take the concept of a deadline. Is the deadline real? Does a deadline matter? Does it matter to a client or a customer? Is their deadline there because the work is that important for that customer, that client? Or is this an arbitrary control mechanism that you're using to create fear and pressure in your colleagues? If it's the former, it will create purpose motive, actually. And if you do a good job of running rhythms, it'll create play also because people can problem solve now. Like they can actually get creative inside that deadline. If it's the latter, if it's an arbitrary artificial mechanism that you use to create a control system around your people, it will be demotivating. And that's the nuance that's really important that it's not that the deadline itself was inherently a direct motive or an indirect motive. It's how we... Use it and the construct of it around the way our people work. Another example of this is money. People will ask me this question Is money a direct motive or an indirect motive? Because you hear the word economic pressure, you assume that I'm saying money is an indirect motive. Well, not necessarily. Um, I'll give you an example. We measured these motives in a, ver- a large financial institution. And because they were very interested in getting motives right, I mean, I think you'd, you'd recognize. The banking industry has been using pressure for a long time to their detriment. Pressure is what resulted in the mortgage crisis in the US. It resulted in the, the sales stuff that you saw in the US with companies like Wells Fargo. Uh-huh. Essentially, high pressure frontline cheated. This is a predictable consequence of using pressure to drive performance. So then people ask me, like, help me understand money. And so we did this very long and deep transformation of a financial institution, including measuring the motives of all their people. And one of the highest motivated jobs in this institution was a small business banker. Now, full commission. And so you ask yourself, hey, Neil, doesn't that fly in the face of everything that you're saying? Absolutely not. Because when you ask a small business banker, who pays your salary? It's the customer. In fact, most of them believe that the customer is their customer, so much so That if they were to go to one, if they were to leave that institution, go to another one, they could take their book of customers with them. They essentially view their relationship primarily as customer to them. And the institution is essentially a platform that they pay. And so when money isn't part of the control system, but you actually feel like I'm earning this money because I created impact for this customer. And in fact, this money is a signal of the impact that I created for this customer. All of a sudden, money becomes purpose. Yeah, money becomes a signal of purpose.
0: Money becomes a exactly. signal of whether you are you are doing justice to the purpose that you set out to
1: do. That's exactly right. But you have to get the dynamics of it right, the signals of it right. So for example, I saw a lot of banks trying to sever that relationship with small business bankers, essentially trying to say, small business banker, that's not your customer, it's my customer. I pay you, they don't pay you. What these banks don't realize is you are dramatically decreasing the motivation of your colleagues dramatically. They will turn faster attrite trite faster. They'll burn out faster. Their performance will worsen because that direction matters. Right. So I understand
0: uh, a lot of the direct motivators are intrinsic and some of the indirect motivators are um, systemic. They're external. Um, they're imposed on people at times. With the pandemic, the line between what is life and what is work, what is personal and what is professional has blurred quite a bit. So when you think about motivation, I'm sure there is a lot of impact that, you know, health outcomes, uh, job security outcomes, family members going through challenges, etc. There's a lot of impact that is having on the motivation of otherwise, well-intentioned, well-skilled, and well-managed employees. So as a manager, if I'm looking at motivation as a sum total of what's happening to them at work and what's happening to them in life, and um, I'm beginning to feel like there is not a lot that I can do to help them with some of their life challenges. All right. So what advice would you give to managers who are witnessing that the people under their charge are going through a number of life challenges that are outside of anybody's control uh, and beginning to realize that that affects their motivation and their work uh, productivity and their adaptive performance, uh, what advice would you have for them? To intervene in life
1: or not to? That's a great question because you're absolutely right that the motivation you feel for work will absolutely be affected by things that are not necessarily at work. Um, think Think about Emotional pressure, for example, the stronger your identity is at any given moment, the less emotional pressure you feel. And if this pandemic is eating away at your identity in a variety of different ways, you'll be much more susceptible to emotional pressure, economic pressure. You're seeing all sorts of hardship all around you, um, and you might feel a lot of it in your own family. That's, of course, going to create a great deal of economic pressure. And then, of course, there's this nihilistic inertia. What's the point? What's the point of all of this? That comes up in these moments. And so, one, it's just, it is normal, it's human that these things will affect work motivation. And simply acknowledging that goes a long way. Just simply acknowledging that, hey, we're all human and these things that are often out of our control will affect us. And we get that. That's one. Two is have fewer meetings. And so, there's so many companies that are just, they've gone meeting over overboard. Like you talk to frontline leaders and they'll say, I am scheduled in meetings all day, every day. And the problem with that is if you do have a higher degree of difficulty in life or just you're at home and your kids are at home and everyone's at home and you have all sorts of other like volatility and dealing with that, you have to, organizations have to learn how to, Collaborate asynchronously. And this is one that I see as a widespread, rampant skill gap. People don't know how to collaborate asynchronously. And they know how to do quick things asynchronously, but not collaboratively problem solve. I actually would argue that at the core of Goldman Sachs' argument is we don't know how to collaboratively problem solve asynchronously. Now, this is very solvable, by the way. And I think a team actually taking the steps to learn how to collaboratively problem solve asynchronously with far fewer meetings will have an incredible benefit on the mental well-being of all of these colleagues in this hybrid remote work environment. Um, So that's the second thing. The third thing, imagine you have a really close friend or loved one who's stressed, and they're in a state of, of almost sometimes paralysis because of that extreme straight state of, of pressure or stress that they're feeling at any given point. The third thing that a leader can do is keep the team organized. Because your natural state is when you get stressed, you start to let all of your own personal habits start to fall apart. You get disorganized. The sad irony of that is that it actually increases your stress, not decreases it. What a leader can do is actually say, you know what, I'm going to help keep the team organized so that we all know what we should be prioritizing, what we shouldn't be, and we can have those conversations easily, and we're not overwhelmed by the all of the stuff that's flying at us in the modern-day company, if that leader can acknowledge motivation, um, get rid of meetings, problem-solve asynchronously, and really help with keeping the team organized, it goes a long way to solving for the dynamics that you're describing.
0: Neil, I wish we had uh, a lot more time to discuss this, especially things like asynchronous problem solving, which I think is uh, the defining problem of the decade for for leaders. Um, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. But I just want to thank you for spending time with us on this podcast today. It has been absolutely phenomenal. The advice that you've given is spot on. The insights that you've shared um, are incredibly on point especially for leaders and managers who are struggling with this uh, question today. Um, I wish you all the best and thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Not at all, it's my pleasure. If anyone wants to learn more, feel free to send them our contact information or read Prime to perform because it goes much deeper into all these topics. But thank you for your time, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. You have been listening to the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast by Deloitte Southeast Asia. If you like what you heard, Don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.